Hello and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tagal, and today's episode is a little different. It's a special industry discussion recorded as part of a remarketing roundtable series designed to keep the conversation going in the absence of an in-person CPHI worldwide. This is an exclusive for Molecule to Market, so please enjoy and share with your colleagues. Thank you for making the time to either attend live or uh, re-listen in whatever format you decided to do that. Um, For context, uh, this is the second in a series of discussions uh, featuring some really fantastic industry experts. Uh, And for context, we know firsthand how valuable it is to have that face-to-face interaction and conversations with colleagues and peers from across the industry. Um, And it would have been my 15th CPHI, so I'm very sad that that's not happening this year. Uh, But in light of the cancellation of CPHI in person, uh, we wanted to make sure there was still a platform uh, for those conversations, hence the remarketing roundtable was born. Um, Each of the roundtables are kind of designed to discuss uh, trends, insights, topical issues, uh, and developments, particularly from 2020 uh, and beyond. And all the sessions are going to be available to download and hear on demand on our Molecule to Market podcast and also via our website. So today's roundtable uh, tackles clinical trials in 2020 and beyond. Before we dive into this session, uh, we're going to start with some introductions. Uh, so who are the, these lovely people that you see on screen in front of you today? I'll start with myself and then I'm going to pass to my co-host, Laura, who's then going to pass on to our uh, esteemed guests. So I'm Roman, uh, the founder and global president of Remarketing. I oversee Remarketing's US operations uh, from here in Boston in the US. Uh, For background, I've spent my entire career in the pharma and biotech outsourcing space. Uh, During that time, I've had the uh, privilege of working with and advising uh, over 60 brands in life sciences on creative communication and business strategy. Uh, I'm very proud to have built Remarketing into an international marketing agency that supports clients across life sciences all over the world. Uh, Our team is now around 40 people uh, and I adore each and every one of them, including the lovely Laura, who I'm going to pass to now. Thanks so much, Roman. So I'm delighted to be part of this roundtable alongside some fantastic guests today, as you can see. Uh, my name is Laura Child. I'm the CRO sector lead at Remarketing. I've spent my career embedded in the life science sector managing complex clinical trials. Um, so today's conversation is going to be incredibly interesting and I'm ready to get started. So I'm going to hand over to our panel of guests. We've got Vincent, Torkel and Steve. Uh, Vincent, perhaps you'd like to introduce yourself first. Sure, yeah. Vincent Dunn, I'm the CEO of the Walsdahl Group. Um, I've spent most of my career, last 25 years in the pharmaceutical industry. And about a year and a half ago, I jumped sides and joined one of Europe's largest contract packing and manufacturing um, experts, the Walsdahl Group. So I head up a team of, there's four sites and 800 people, and we do quite a bit of clinical packaging. And Glad to be here today. We've certainly seen a few changes in the past few months. Thanks, Vincent. Torkel, do you mind going next? I'm Torkel Graham. I'm working for Reciform. I am a Senior Director of Technology Office and Strategic Investments. And Reciform is a CDMO, Contract and Development Organization, uh, with more than 30 facilities located in, in 10 countries. And we work with uh, development, of course, commercial manufacturing, and uh, we are active both in, in um, drug substances, drug products, and in devices, medical devices. And uh, of course, we're also manufacturing a lot of clin- clinical trial material, and that, that is why our interest in, in, in uh, clinical trials, what, what, what that comes from. Thank you. And then last but not, not least, uh, Steve. Yes, good morning. My name is Steve Rohde. I'm part of the Lanza Capsigel Capsules and Health Ingredients Business Development Team. Uh, I'm actually a legacy Capsigel colleague starting way back in the days when we were part of Warner Lambert. Uh, I've got 32 years uh, next month experience in the industry. Uh, and my specific tie into the clinical trial world is I was part of the original development team uh, that came up with the empty heart capsules known as DB caps, which are utilized globally for a lot of solid oral dose double blind studies. And I'm thrilled to be here today. Thank you. Thank you so much. much. 
Okay, so I'll kick off with the first question then. Uh, when we think about COVID-19, it's caused some stark shifts in the mindset as to how we ensure continuity of treatment uh, for patients. This is both in the clinical trial setting and also the commercial landscape. So what do you think are the biggest lessons that we have learned through this period? And what changes off the back of the pandemic do you think are going to be here to stay? I don't know whether, Vincent, perhaps you'd like to take this one first? Sure, yeah. I mean, we've worked with several sponsors where um, we've had to change some of the practices for direct shipment to patients, etc., in order to keep the trials going. And in fairness, the, the, regulatory, the respective regulatory authorities have been very understanding and very accommodating. Um, I'm not sure, Laura, in, in hindsight, whether we've learned lessons because... I'm just being maybe controversial a little, but when you read about the approaches when COVID first happened, that's particularly with consulting companies, et cetera, everyone mapped out what life was going to be life, like during COVID and post-COVID. Post-COVID sort of didn't happen. We didn't anticipate that we'd have multiple waves. So whereas we were all try just trying to get by and firefight maybe and, and put in temporary processes in the hope that the world would return to some bit of normality, that hasn't happened. So even just this week, um, the British um, Pharmaceutical Association were still pushing to the, the UK government to relax restrictions around trials for non-COVID treatments. So we've still a lot to learn. Thank you. Torkel, would you like to add anything or express a, change, a difference of opinion at all? No, I'm not sure it's, it's a different opinion, but I, I think that we haven't seen a lot of impact really from COVID from, from our perspective. Uh, of course, it has impacted our, our ability to deliver clinical trial material, or it has, it has been a problem in getting raw materials in some cases, and that has forced us to replan and redo things in order to deliver in time. But in most cases, it hasn't been a huge problem. We have been able to keep our operations running. And so, so to some extent, I think that shows that the system we have today is relatively robust. But thinking about uh, how to limit impact of issues of this, I think it would be wise to think a little more about would it be possible to keep a little more material in stock? because it is a relatively small extra cost often to manufacture a little extra, have a little extra on stock, and it can mean a lot in terms of giving some margins if there are some, some uh, unforeseen problems like a, pandem a pandemic. Steve, any, any thoughts uh, or a different perspective? Uh, not necessarily a different perspective. I, I agree with both Vincent and Torkel. I think that perhaps also given the globality these days of many clinical trials, instead of seeing you know classic trials conducted in maybe just the US or Europe, now it is essentially a global clinical trial market. So um, you know having the additional supplies prepared um, is an excellent idea, making sure your supply chain is robust and or you have potentially the ability to produce in segments of the world that you might not otherwise be able to um, access as a result of actions by countries or governments to reduce travel, eliminate travel, um, you know, maybe impact the actual trial approach and, and emphasize something relative to COVID or de-emphasize. But I mean, there are a lot of significant diseases that have to continue to be treated with clinical materials, um, particularly in the advent of greater orphan drug approvals and those types of things. So I think it's really caused maybe a deeper dive into um, evaluating a lot of aspects of the process. Yeah, thanks Thanks for that. And you, the word patient was mentioned a couple of times in, in the conversation there. And so the question I've got is, you know, how do CDMOs uh, apply a, a patient-centric approach when they're often one step removed from the patient and you know linked closely to that are we going to see that step disappearing in the future or you know our CDMO is going to be closer aligned with the patient be interesting to get your take on uh, whether you know uh, I suppose how you apply that patient-centric approach um, I'm going to start with Steve and go <laughs> go the the opposite way around this time Sure, absolutely. Well, I think again in the in the world that we are in, and with the technology accessibility that we have, and and potentially with um, the 
you know, accessibility directly to the patient if the process is set up properly. I think that for certain types of disease states or treatments, you know, the likelihood of, of maybe setting up in-home trial access and tracking and those types of things is feasible. Uh, you know, certainly I'm not a subject matter expert, but uh, these days there are potentially ways in which um, you can track all the way to the patient and track compliance. There are some digital technologies coming out, not necessarily fully vetted or implemented. They may actually allow for um, you know tracking compliance and also the uh, you know the patient outcomes, the reporting through telemedicine. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Topol. Yeah, I I, uh, I think this is a very interesting area, and and it. Of course, patients today want more control uh, over a lot of, I mean, people want more control over their lives, I think. And, and that is, does also mean that patients want more control over the medication. And I think that will, will impact not only how we conduct clinical trials, but also how drug products will be used in the future. And we can see it, I mean, we already see, for instance, a huge interest in, in auto-injectors which allows patients to inject themselves, which is gives the patient more freedom. It's really good for, for healthcare because we can reduce costs. But I also think that going forward, we will see a lot of demand for drug products and devices that allow the patient to modify their treatment more themselves to adjust doses. So we'll see an interest in, in dispenser devices, in dose pumps, different devices that can help in this. And I, I think this is this could be very interesting in the future and, and change not only how we work in, 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 uh, in our industry, but also how uh, really the interaction between healthcare and patients. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your perspective on that. And Vincent, any, any thoughts? So you're asking about the patient-centric approach of CDMOs. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting when you say that CDMOs are one step removed. I, 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 I'm not sure I entirely agree with that, Roman. Um, I think definitely from working in the pharmaceutical industry and visiting a lot of pharma clients, um, they're all, you know, pharma is all about the patient. And it's more or less elevated the treatment above the branding in some ways. Companies are, have now become about the treatments rather than a marketing spin on their, on their products, etc. But I've seen CDMOs, including Wasdell, even other um, contract packers, manufacturers that I've visited, are starting to embrace that. Traditionally, yes, um, CDMOs were typically more customer-focused and patient-focused, but I would bet anything that if you were to go down to a packing line or manufacturing line in a CDMO these days and talk to the staff, they would know the treatment, they would know what it's about because that education has gone right back from pharmaceutical companies back into the CDMOs. And it's not uncommon now to educate the staff on those lines about the importance of the treatment, particularly during COVID when a lot of people um, have been working from home and still are working from home. Our facilities have not shut. And I think it's important to go down and talk to the staff and they realize themselves the importance of why they cannot stay at home and get payment for sitting off the government or whatever to, to, you know, to sit around. So I think they, they get that. So I, if anything, I've, I think COVID has helped push the patient centricity of CDMOs even further along the road. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, actually. And one kind of, I suppose, follow-up question or uh, I suppose be interesting to get your thoughts on I mean, I, I look at the COVID situation and I think it's actually made patients at large and the general population at large uh, more aware of the CDMO space. I think a lot of people, you know, the, Joe Bloggs did not know that, you know, a contract manufacturer was, was, was making <laughs> their drug product, whether it be for trials or anything. So do you, think, do you think that's a good thing longer term, that there's actually a greater awareness, I suppose, in the general public that uh, CDMOs actually exist and, you know, it's obviously where I am in the US, it's very well documented over here in terms of whether political funding is going to, to, um, to support vaccines uh, for COVID. But at a general level, do you think it's a good thing for the sector that I suppose patients uh, and people at large are more aware of, of the space? Uh, Torkel, do you want to have an answer at that? Yeah, I can start at that. Yeah, I, I think it is a good thing. Not necessarily that, that yeah, it could be good that people know more about CDMOs. But in particular, 
that they are more aware of the importance of development and manufacture of pharmaceutical products. Because I think to, to, there is a lot of interest in, in uh, the research and the drug discovery because that is a sort of very interesting and, and easy to understand that this is very challenging <laughs> and, and cool. And then there is a lot of, of folks on, on the marketing and how much money we spend, the pharmaceutical industry spends on marketing. But people forget how very important the little more sort of mundane tasks of, of doing the development and manufacture the tablets that people need. And this is, this, it's essential activities for the society. And I think it's good that people are becoming a little more aware of that. Thank you for that. And Steve, any additional thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I would also agree. I think that, you know, certainly, uh, and I don't know the rest of the world, but in the U.S., you, you see on, on the television routinely commercials with regards to this product and that product, et cetera, and you see it tied to the actual, you know, brand company in itself. But, you know, also in the U.S., there's a tremendous amount of pressure, as elsewhere around the world, on cost and, and deliverables and speed. So I think that if somehow the CDMO message um, is, you know, uh, structured such that people recognize that it's not just a single large entity, but many aspects in support of that entity and at the speed to market and drugs are coming through faster because some companies are reaching out to CDMOs to, you know, undertake activities that might otherwise have taken them longer and cost them more to help get those products out. So if there's perhaps a way to kind of blend this message to show the, the, the speed, the cost and the, and the patient endpoint could be very helpful. Thank you. Vincent? Yeah, I agree with, with both Torkel and, and, and Stephen. I think it's less, I think it's good that people are, are a little bit more aware, but I don't think it's essential. I think people are certainly becoming more conscious about the, you know, where drugs are coming from. And uh, I think the political pressure in the US, as well as Europe and even Japan are, are spending millions on, on, on bringing pharmaceutical manufacturing back home. And I think that's going to be not just a more of a public awareness type thing. I think it's even going to become a political issue in, in, in the years ahead. So I think we're going to see more and more of that for sure. Thank Thanks, you. Vincent. Okay, um, just to dig a little bit deeper then, and it, it won't necessarily be directly within your organizations, but in industry as a whole, we are hearing a lot more about direct-to-patient nowadays. Are we seeing within the industry that COVID has accelerated this trend in the clinical space quite significantly? And is this sort of a model that you expect to continue furthermore? Vincent, perhaps you'd like to go first? Yeah, I think definitely I'd like to, I, th I think it's good that it goes further. You know, we all know that the pharmaceutical industry and, and, and clinical trials are somewhat behind the rest of industry and that we put up a lot of regulatory hurdles which are oftentimes necessary don't get me wrong but traditional supply chain models are are, are quite fat and quite clunky um, and pharmaceutical industry and clinical trials often depend on high levels of inventory rather than agility and speed to market and speed to responsiveness so i think if anything i'd like to think that COVID will will teach us that we need more agility, we need to rely on more flexible, quicker processes, making better use of the, the drug product that's there, as well as you know, entering the whole area of analytics and using data more to drive better outcomes out of clinical trials. Thank you. Um, Torkel, would you like to go up? Sharing your opinions? Yeah. Um... I, I hope that, that Vincent is right, that, that this will, will mean that things will go quicker. And I think if, to some extent, yes, yeah, I think we're going that direction, but I'm, I'm not over optimistic about how fast it, it will be. My, my experience is that uh, regulations are, are slow to change in our area. Um, so, um, yeah. This, it will help to some extent, but I, I don't think we'll see drastic improvements very soon, unfortunately. Sure, thank you. Stephen, I'm uh, curious to know whether you've got anything else to add as well. Yeah, I, I actually concur with the panel. I think the regulatory aspect of it really is truly the, the greatest challenge, I think, as far as 
you know, being able to go direct to patient, uh, it would be certainly feasible and, you know, registering them and qualifying them and, and monitoring them. I think that's, that's all uh, quite doable in today's world. However, I think the, the regulatory challenges really will be uh, uh, the key and, and potentially quite significant. Thank you. We've got um, <clears throat> we've got a question from one of our one of our guests, which is it covers a few points that we actually talked about, but uh, it's quite an interesting one. So I'm I'm going to ask it. I'll just read it out word for word. So, uh, patient centricity makes sense from an end user or clinical trial point of view, uh, clinical trial center point of view. What benefits does patient patient centricity really have for the CDMO, which by its very nature is already a step removed from the patient? Are CDMOs that boast about patient-centric, uh, pa uh, patient-centric approach, just riding a marketing bandwagon? So, <laughs> uh, well, I'm gonna, um, Steve. I don't know if you wanna wanna have a go at that. Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, um, I, you know, certainly I can understand the comment about riding the the, the marketing bandwagon, but I but I also think that the industry is evolving towards more patient centricity with regards to personalized medicines and things. And so I think that, you know, in order to to push that envelope forward and, and to be able to, you know, bring out true results that do focus on patient specific medications, there there is certainly the the need to to dig deeper into that. You know, I personally don't have direct CDMO, you know, manufacturing uh, experience. So I'd actually defer to Torquil or Vincent and Onnit to really speak about that. But I think the closer we can get, the faster we can get, um, we all win. Yeah, Vincent. Yeah, again, uh, I don't agree that CDMOs are one step removed. Um, it may be that CDMOs don't use the marketing spin of, of, of large pharma, whatever, but I think it's more marketing spin, as I said earlier. I think it's more about the focus on the treatment than the patient. And certainly for when you get a CDMO like Wasdell or like Resopharm, who are actually manufacturing and packing the product for pharma clients that are probably still working from home since last March, I'd argue, if anything, we're probably a step closer to the patient than the step removed. That's a great point. Talk. <laughs> Torkel, I'm, I'm, I'm going to guess you're going to agree with Vincent on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. And I, I think I would like to take it a step further. I think we are very much, we may not talk a lot about patient centricity, but we are very involved with it because a, a lot of patient centricity is about changing the dosage form and a package because really the user interface of a pharmaceutical product that is the dosage form, that is the package, That's, that is the thing that the patient really has a close relationship to. And we can do a lot of things uh, to improve uh, and make it easier for the patient, to uh, make it easier to take the drug, to remember to take the drug, uh, make it more pleasant, to bring it with you in your purse or whatever during day, day activities. There are so many things. And we are very involved in this. I mean. Of course, our customers come to us because they have, they understand the patient needs, they understand the market. But we in the CDMO industry, we help them to, uh, to um, find the right technical solution, solutions with, with uh, robust quality, solutions that we can manufacture, solutions that will work, be economically feasible, both in development costs and cost of goods. So, in, in a way, I think patient centricity is, is very, it's a central in a way to what we're doing, a lot of the activities that we're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, just I, looping back to something I think Vincent said earlier on, if, if, if we could sort of shine a light on one of the positive things that have come out of 2020, which has been a wholly negative year in so many aspects, is the fact that everyone can appreciate being that patient um, so it, it's almost brought everyone closer to being a patient, whether it's in industry or outside of industry, just the general population. So I think there's some really valid points there. Um, moving on to a question that's more around geography. So uh, particularly in light of what's happened and the flexibility and adaptability that we've seen needed through 2020, how do you think geography has impacted the ability to, to, to perform, to be able to deliver for your, for your uh, clients? And, especially if we consider maybe less conventional models, but 
looking at where you're based and what that limitations are or, or, or um, the positive side of your locations as well. Steve, I don't know if you want to go first. Yeah, I think perhaps what, what you know, the lesson might be is that, um, you know, say historically some of the larger um, pharmaceutical companies had quote unquote centers of excellence in which they'd produce, you know, a product or, or maybe even their clinical trial materials or work with a particularly, you know, regional based CDMO. I think having uh, maybe if possible capabilities in multiple locations around the world um, to be able to, if borders shut down or if things are imposed with regards to travels or whatever, you know, beyond just having, uh, you know, additional inventory of product, but the possibility of, of being able to produce those materials um, in the event that uh, that restrictions would, would um, you know, come up at some point in time. You know, it seems as though, um, you know, a lot of the, the quote unquote classic maintenance drugs that were high volumes are, are at least currently kind of a thing in the past and more and more specialization is taking place in smaller production runs, you know, relatively speaking, you know, even though trial, um, you know, phase one, two, three numbers, uh, you know, as far as participants may be changing as well too. So I, I don't think it's necessary, uh, uh, impossible for folks to put those, those capabilities around the world. And again, there's more and more trials taking place around the world. So I think having the, the flexibility across the, the, the network of a particular organization could be very valuable. And Steve, just a quick follow-up question on that, because as a, as a you know, true global business like that you guys are, are you seeing any differences in geography across the board? Are you, th you know, particularly say the harder hit areas of the world from a COVID perspective having an impact on trials, for example? Uh, just curious to know if you guys are seeing something at a, at a broader level. Um, there, you know, to a degree, but I wouldn't say that it's, it's you know, um, a doom and gloom type of situation. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Torkel, I don't know if you want to pick up on, on Laura's uh, geography related question, but also as I suppose, you know, similar follow up from myself around, you know, uh, particularly for you guys, obviously you have sites in in northern Italy. You have sites in in India. Um, just yeah, just to get in addition to Laura's question, any feel for uh, how the different geographies for your business have been impacted as well? Yeah, um, I think we have been very fortunate in a way. Uh, we have uh, not closed that. I think we closed uh, one facility in Portugal for a few days. Otherwise, we have managed to stay all open, even though we have four facilities in the Greater Milan area, and uh, and they have suffered, of course, and also our our um, our Indian facilities because there have been a lot of res travel restrictions that have been difficult for employees to get to work. But it, we managed to stay open, and and all in all, I think we have come through it, or at least so far, we haven't been impacted that that uh, it kind of could have been much worse, I think. Uh, it's interesting to see where, what, what, what impact of this will, will, uh, where it will take us because, as I think Stephen talked a bit about, uh, and, and we've talked about earlier also that, that uh, there will be some, some push to, to have uh, services done more, more closely to home, to, to, yeah, to, to bring business home. So that, that is maybe one trend we'll see, but also we have made, I think, really great uh, improvements in the way we can collaborate electronically about virtual meetings. And of course, that's been a trend over many years, but I think we took a great leap, great leap forward with, uh, during this pandemic. And I, that, will, that, I think, will change our way of working and make it will, I think, decrease distances and in the longer run, uh, longer term, make it more easy to um, to to get services from other parts in the world. So um, I'm not sure what uh, the overall effect will be of all this. Thank you, Torkel. Vincent, any any thoughts on geography? 
I think we're going to have to learn to cope with it because I agree with, 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 with Stephen and Torkel again. Um, there's always a need for certain clinical trials to have a diverse geographic footprint for, you know, because sometimes we need diverse range of patients from different ethnic backgrounds, etc. Or it may be that, you know, there could be problems with patient recruitment or even clinical trial oversight, whatever. Um, but that physician and patient relationship is extremely important. So I think we're still going to need that. I, I, I think the point was made about using Zoom and other technologies in order to overcome the, the fact that we can't do travel. I think that that's, will still play, play in clinical trials. Yeah, I, I did have a, a slightly different question. And you mentioned something before, Vincent, about um, staff getting to work and understanding their responsibilities. So I'm just curious to know within your different businesses and your sites, how difficult has it been for, for business as usual to actually deal with COVID and get staff sites safely? I can only imagine that's been incredibly challenging and you've had to put, uh, I suppose, different measures in place to actually be able to produce product for, for trials and, and really <laughs> assess your own businesses as well. So just, yeah, given you're all working businesses with, with multiple sites, uh, any insight into how, how challenging that has been? To give some context, I actually had a conversation with uh, the external outsourcing team at a, a large pharmaceutical company a few, few months ago. And they said that they had been blown away with actually the performance of their CDMO partners to be able to go over and beyond actually uh, to deliver products. So what has that been like, <laughs> you know, on the ground in reality? So Vincent, uh, I'll start with you because obviously I know you, you've got you know, four sites in, in the UK and Ireland, so it'd be great to get your perspective on that. Yeah, obviously we put in additional measures in each of the sites to protect the staff. Um, as much as we can. Um, the fact that they're working in clean rooms also helps given that the air differential, etc., and the air changes are much better than in a regular environment. But yeah, it has been tough and, and we've definitely had staff who, who, who didn't want to come in in the early days. But I think when they saw the extra preventative measures in place, when, and they know the importance of getting products to the patient, they're, they're not quite frontline, but they're, they're, they're not far off it. They, they, you know, the supply chain depends on them coming into work every day. So we haven't had any interruption to any of the facilities, um, thank God, to date. Um, and, you know, I think our measures are there to, to, to protect the staff in the future. So we'll see it's, it's difficult to predict what, how, it, how this will go. Thanks, Vincent. Uh, Steve, any, any impact, uh, you know, any insight into how it's been for, for your sites across the world in, in terms of the, the on-the-ground reality of, of keeping those sites going? Sure. Um, you know, I don't have a great uh, in-depth view into it. I, I know that, again, from the, 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 the part of the business that I represent, specifically the empty hard capsules, we operate eight manufacturing sites around the world. And in fact, we saw uh, almost 20 to 30 percent increase in demand for empty capsules. So for us, that made it you know, a, an absolute necessity to put up all the appropriate measures to put, uh, you know, staff in the appropriate places and actually to remove staff from other places so that the business activities of the day can, can resume uh, without any interruption, both from the empty hard capsule manufacturing to the distribution to whatever. So I think Lanza globally has done an exceptional job because, um, you know, empty capsules, be it for, you know, pharmaceutical products or nutritional products or clinical trial studies, um, if they're not available, then, you know, patients are not being ultimately served. So, you know, there's been a lot of exceptional things done. And then certainly in the case of Lanza and their um, vaccine development work, you know, they're right in the fight providing, you know, doses for, for clinical trials. So it's been uh, actually quite inspirational. Great. That's great to hear, Steve. Talk along, and I imagine it's the same for you guys in terms of Resi Farms, you know, 30 plus 30 sites across the world. Uh, you mentioned an issue, oh, not an issue, but something at the Portuguese site that you guys have. How is it? How has it been for you guys at a site level? Yeah, as I as I said, we have uh, come through it relatively fine so far, and 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 this is this is of course difficult. It's a balance because we we must protect our, our employees, and we must also take our share in in trying to reduce. Uh, the spread in the society. But on the other hand, 
people need their medication. We need, we need to, to continue to produce and we need to also supply clinical trials. So um, it's a tough job, but, but uh, so far it has, it's a, it has worked out fine. And, and I think it is, you really have to case by case do a lot of decisions. What, what is reasonably safe and, and what is not, because we cannot just, I mean, the safest for our employees would be to let them stay home, everyone, but we can't do that. <laughs> Thank you, Torkel. Okay, so um, another question whilst we're still going through some discussions on COVID then is that uh, potential cold chain issues are expected for some of the anticipated COVID vaccine candidates. Currently in trials, we're looking at some very low temperatures. How do you think this will be handled, especially when we are expecting to produce unprecedented quantities of the various vaccines um, to try and sort of do a global treatment, basically. Uh, I don't know, Torkel, if you want to come back onto this one and, and provide some opinions. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that that is a difficult question. I think uh, storage here will be a uh, a great competitive advantage because it will be difficult not only for 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 us but for for I mean the total chain of, of um, vaccine reaching out to 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 the patients or, or to to whoever that will will give the injection so so uh, I think that uh, that that is one one thing but is it will be difficult to to produce or I mean to get all the cold storage that will be needed, possibly, if, we, if it turns out that, that we will be stuck with, with some vaccines that require cold storage. Thank you. I don't know, Steve, have you got anything to share? Uh, no, that, uh, other than I, I do agree. I mean, the, the, the temperatures that we've, we've heard with some of these materials will need to be, you know, maintained and stored is certainly very challenging. Cold chain is not new to the industry, but, you know, perhaps this would be a little bit of uh, an excessive type of cold chain for some of these items. Um, I, you know, uh, I think that resource-wise, it'll, it'll take perhaps a combination of governmental as well as industry, as well as, you know, private industry to try to maybe all kind of come together to make this work, um, uh, even ultimately to the healthcare provider sites, um, because I don't necessarily think hospitals are necessarily set up for large scale um, deep uh, or, you know, low, low refrigeration type things and at the type of doses that hopefully will be available, you know, at the rate at which and the district and the, and the administration of which um, it, it's going to be logistically extremely hard. So um, I think it'll be a, a, a combination of a number of different elements to really make it uh, successful. Very good point. Thank you. Vincent, have you got anything you'd like to share on this topic? Yeah, certainly from, from, um, from our, what we're seeing is that cold chain capacity, particularly in the, the in the UK and Ireland, is is very scarce at the minute. It's you know it's eaten up with with Brexit impacting that. People are are stocking up. Also with general COVID situation, food manufacturers etc. are taking a lot of capacity. We're currently expanding our cold chain capacity ourselves because of demand. Um, and yes, I think on one hand, uh, I think there will be challenges whenever a vaccine comes out. I'd like to think, though, going back to my earlier point, that there will be such a demand that we see a more streamlined supply chain and we won't need so much capacity that as it's produced, it'll be used in the, in, in, uh, with, with patients. So maybe that will mitigate. Certainly APIs, et cetera, may require capacity, but I'd like to think finished product will flow through to patients as quickly as possible. Well, we hope so. <laughs> um... And then we have another question from uh, from our viewers and uh, a similar type of idea. And uh, how do the panel feel about the unprecedented speed of clinical trials seen in developing COVID vaccines and therapies, phase one to three in just five months in some cases? Are there any lessons to be learned to speed up recruitment and operations for non-COVID trials uh, going, going forward? Um, Steve, I don't know if you want to have a. Sorry, you were, you look like you were pondering there. Sorry, I caught I caught you. Sure, no, 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 no worries. <laughs> no, no. Um, you know, first, I think it, it's a testament to you know human ingenuity and from already the methods and practices that have been developed 
that we're able to move so quickly. I think certainly, you know, the fundamentals of safety, efficacy, recruitment are all there. I think maybe there might be a greater motivation with regards to trial participants and that you're looking truly at a global situation in which, you know, their efforts can benefit you know, in a sense, the world. So people, I think, recruiting and wanting to to participate and be part of it is is inspirational in a sense. If that could potentially be moved to other types of indication classes long term, I think that also would be fantastic. You know, I'm I'm not a vaccine expert, but I guess I maybe look in a rudimentary way that if we're able to generate annual influenza vaccines, you know, certainly COVID is not necessarily that, but, you know, is there a lesson that can be learned from how we do annual influenza vaccines to COVID vaccines and maybe finding ways to compress the timelines for, um, you know, um, disease critical vaccines as a result of this. I, I think everybody again wins as a result. That's uh, a great, it's a great point. Uh, Torkel, any, any views? I I agree with what what uh, Stephen says. It's it's um, it in a in a time like this, it's a good time. I mean, we have a lot of pressure, and uh, that that is a good uh, good environment for for new inventions and new ways to look at things and doing things better. But it will be very important that we don't take sh any shortcuts that that uh, jeopardize safety, of course. Yeah, Vincent. I'm not sure of too much more to add. It's certainly an unprecedented time, and I think that's why we've seen such a response for volunteers or, or, or patients, whatever. Um, and certainly I was reading an article during the week about the, some of the trials for plasma-based treatments for COVID. And during the, you know, there's, 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 there's treatment for during the, um, when you have COVID itself, and then post-COVID treatments. And sometimes patients have a matter of days to decide whether they're going to take the treatment or not, which is putting a lot of pressure also on the patients, never mind anyone going in for trials itself. So I'm not sure if I have a perfect answer. Maybe the, we, maybe the pharma industry in general need to focus more on communication and awareness of the need for trials, et cetera, to get more buy-in with patients. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great point, actually. And it's, it's funny, so that, you know, collectively what you guys have said there, I think, um, it's on one hand is a great opportunity for the pharma industry and the drug development space that we all operate in at large to uh, be seen as a bit of a hero to the world. You know, if, if in a great opportunity to actually rebuild a reputation that's actually been damaged for, for, for many years. But on the flip side, I look at it and, you know, even family and friends will say, oh, we'll have a vaccine by the end of the year. I'm like, oh my God, vaccines are not easy to, to develop, never mind manufacturing, get to patients. So, it's the, you know, we might get one within a year and a half and hopefully that, that happens. But at the same time, it also sets the expectation, you know, for the future that it takes, you know, a year and a half to develop a drug product, which I think, as we all know, that's very rarely happened in, <laughs> in the course of time. So, so yeah, so I'm going to pass the Laura because I know we've got a, a, a 10 minutes or so left and there was another yeah. a couple of questions that we wanted to get across. Thank you. Uh, just to touch back on that point as well, I think Stephen may maybe have alluded to it slightly, is that uh, another positive that has come out of this is that it's, it's really sort of uncovered or raised a flag over diversity in clinical trials and the lack of representation. And that can only be a positive thing moving forward. So uh, hopefully we'll make great progress on that in the future. Um, so moving away slightly from COVID for a moment, I'm interested to know if you're seeing trends in regards to more diversity in drug product development and uh, such as um, unusual dosage forms or, or routes of administration at all. Uh, Torkel, would you be happy to share your thoughts on this? Yeah, the, the simple answer is, is yes. We definitely see that. It is, uh, to me, very obvious that small indications are interesting today. And, and I think it's, it's, it's not strange because even though the, the money you can make from a small indication is, is a lot smaller, the competition is less, uh, the risk, development risk will be lower and development costs are, are often, yeah, they are lower as well. And I think we see this and it, it has a lot of different, but, but one, one, um, one way we see this or how it affects us is that there is a, a great interest in in um, un, unusual dosage forms or all dosage forms other than tablets in a way. 
uh, injections, uh, not only IV, but, but all different type of local treatments, uh, all that is, is uh, increasing. And, and uh, because it's, it is often a useful way to, to address more, more um, yeah, not, not so common diseases. For, for a small patient group where there is no real treatment, it's not a big problem if you have to inject the medicine. Absolutely. Thank you, Torkel. Um, Steve, have you got, would you like to share any experiences on this, maybe from sort of a capsule perspective, new technologies and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, you know, things have a tendency to, to cycle within the industry at times. You know, what we're actually seeing a resurgence in is the amount of liquid and semi-solid uh, filled hard capsule formulation work increasing. We saw this probably about 15 years ago um, and, and actually have internally expertise uh, where we help clients with formulation development, even finished dose manufacturing through some of our lots of sites around the world. Um, you know, I think folks are seeing the advantages that if you're utilizing an empty hard capsule or a hard polymer capsule approach, you actually have some greater formulation ranges to work with. So hot melts, things like that, where um, maybe some of the more classic uh, things such as soft gels, which have some limitations regarding the, the temperature at which you can formulate and fill, uh, kind of tops out that, that development platform. We've also seen uh, an increase in the amount of DPI capsule-based uh, developments as well, you know, around the world, or at least in certain parts of the world, MDI devices for inhalation products are quite popular, but they can have some um, supply chain and manufacturing issues and limitations and, you know, empty DPI capsules seem to also be resurging with regards to platform uh, programs and, and can be very convenient, number one, and also require less overhead and cost to produce and can be actually utilized on, a, uh, on an as-needed basis as opposed to perhaps an MDI uh, based, which is uh, a daily type of dosing. So we've, we've seen, at least on the empty capsule side, those two particular areas begin, as well as even a focus on enteric um, drug delivery. And we've actually developed capsules that, you know, can be utilized directly filled with product to, to provide enteric uh, performance. Fantastic, thanks. Vincent, have you got anything you would like to add? Not sure I can add. I'd certainly agree with, uh, again, the two, two previous um, panelists. We've, we're seeing more of, of, of that in ourselves when we're looking at new projects coming in. Either the traditional small molecule would have different capsule types or whatever. Um, or as Torco said, it's, you know, in, in biologic space, they're looking at more patient-friendly devices, etc. And certainly in biologics in particular, I think small molecule, the types of products that we get are not so much diverse as in the biologics where you know, I think the, the, the old saying goes of the 7,000 rare diseases in the world, only 400 of treatments, and we'll continue to see an expansion in that area in, in, in the future years. But certainly divergence that you can't just take any product and coming in anymore and treat it as a previous. You have to look really at the treatment, the type of product it is, what it's been used for, etc. Thanks, Vincent. And unbelievably, we are uh, coming towards the end of our roundtable. That's gone very, very quickly. And I just wanted to ask, uh, you know, our guests, I suppose, any closing remarks around clinical trials moving forward and uh, any predictions, you know, hopes, uh, a crystal ball of what the future of you know, clinical trials uh, will look like, particularly post-COVID uh, and, you know, beyond that, how, how we can, I suppose, learn from the experience and uh, have a better, uh, more efficient way of running trials and getting uh, product to trials quicker. Torkel, what does that future look like in your mind? I think that we will we will take important learnings from from this, so that we'll be able to to do clinical trials hopefully a little more rapidly and efficiently. Uh, although I'm, as I said before, I'm not uh, hoping that we'll see a, a sudden great improvement. But I also see that there will be a lot of interest in, in addressing um, a lot of other medical needs than, than virus infections, which is, of course, very, very important. But there are also a lot of other things that we need to cure. So I think there will be, uh, in a few years from now, a lot of, of continued uh, interest in those areas. Thank you, Torkel. Steve, anything to anything to add, or you know, any any thoughts for the future? 
Sure. Yeah, I think perhaps, you know, one of the lessons learned or maybe one of the opportunities uh, as a result of this is, you know, when we when we look at the current approach to COVID with um, repurposing existing molecules, you know, I think certainly the world of 505B2s um, has been well known for years, but I, I think maybe more interest will be expressed in looking at certain types of things that otherwise wouldn't necessarily be indicated for a, a particular disease state or indication class. So I guess I would look to see probably more uh, in-depth research on older molecules, um, you know, maybe attempting to what I kind of call the Humira effect, where Humira has, what, 15, 18, you know, 20 different indications that folks may begin to look and spend the time and energy and, of course, money to look at some, some classic molecules that might have efficacy uh, not just in the case of obviously COVID, but, but in other areas it might uh, be cost effective and, and maybe even more epic effective overall. Thanks, Steve. Vincent, any final comments? Yeah, you see, Ramon, I think this type of question, we should all be having a beer at CPHI to debate. <laughs> and we, could, we could talk about it for an hour or two hours. Um, yeah, I, I agree with what, what was said, and certainly is it. I think the biggest barrier is going to be the regulators and the regulations. But I do think that with COVID and with the political climate, I think there's going to be pressure on the regulators from, from, from the political landscape as well as the industry landscape to change and make sure that the regulations are, are fit for purpose, because certainly in, you know, the pharmaceutical industry can move at a quicker speed, shall we say, to, to progress either additional molecules for, for or additional products for um, other uses or benefits or to, to tackle um, other diseases that don't have, have, have cures yet. Thanks, Vincent. And having shared a beer or two with you in the past, I absolutely agree. It would be, uh, it would have been wonderful to do this discussion uh, over, over, over a beer or two, but uh, unfortunately, that's my hopefully one for the one for the future. But so final thing for me is to say is to uh, thanks on behalf of, of, of Laura and I for, for watching and for our guests, uh, Total Steve and Vincent. Really appreciate your uh, your time, your insights. Uh, I'm sure our uh, you know, viewers have got great value uh, from from today's roundtable. As I mentioned before, the sessions are, are going to be available on the Molecule to Market podcast and also available to download on our website. Uh, our next round table is going to be on Monday at 10 a.m. Uh, Eastern time at 3 p.m. GMT, uh, covering uh, the latest trends in CDMO. Until then, thank you, stay safe, and we will see you very soon. again thanks so much for tuning in to molecule to market we hope you enjoyed today's episode you can find more shows on spotify apple podcast or wherever you like to listen get in touch with us on our website molecule to marketpod.com and follow us on linkedin or twitter and we will see you again next week Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.